Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have you with us in the room, as well as if you're watching and joining with us online. Uh, We are kind of launching back into our fall ministry season, starting today uh, with a brand new series, five-week series. And what we're doing is we're returning to our vision as a church. So uh, it's really, it's been a couple years since we've talked about our vision as a church with all just the craziness of the last 18 months or so. And so what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be returning and looking at our vision for the next five weeks. And our vision for Frontline is stated simply as this, we are not done, Frontline is not done until there are zero lives living unchanged by Jesus. That's uh, what we're all about. And so what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks is we're going to be looking at five different conversion stories in the book of Acts. So these are five different lives that were changed by Jesus in the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at each one of them through the lens of these five zeros that make up our vision. And these are just five things that we think happens in our lives when we uh, surrender ourselves fully to Jesus, when the gospel takes root in our lives. And so today we're going to start out this series... Um, We're going to be talking about Acts chapter 9. That's where we'll be if you want to mark uh, in your Bible where we're headed. Uh, And we're going to be looking at the story of Saul and his conversion story when Saul encounters and meets Jesus. Now Saul, uh, his name, when he meets Jesus, his name is changed to Paul. So I'm just going to say this right off the bat. I'm going to use both of those names interchangeably throughout this message. I'm not even going to try to say one of them all the time. I'm going to say Saul and Paul at different points. Um, But Saul, when he is converted... When he comes to Christianity, when he comes to know Jesus as his Savior, uh, what happens is he is given a purpose, and he becomes the preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And really, he wrote most of the New Testament that we read today. And so uh, what we're going to be doing is looking at his story through the lens of zero unfulfilled callings, this idea that each one of us has a purpose in the kingdom of God. If you guys could go ahead to that next uh, slide. Uh, This is my wife, Carrie. Uh, Carrie is, this is her on a horse um, with an award that she won. Uh, My wife loves horses and I love her. And so ever since she was little, she, ever since she was a little girl, she wanted a horse. That's like been a life dream of hers is to have a horse and be able to ride a horse and take care of it. And so we are finally at the stage of life where our boys are a little bit older and um, we have enough margin in our lives where she is actually now, um, for the better part of the last year, every week she goes to this stable that is here in town where you can actually take classes And so every week she goes and she takes classes and she learns how to take care of a horse. She learns uh, how to ride a horse and it's just everything to do with horses. And her dream is someday someday to own a horse. We'll see uh, if that happens. Um, But this, she absolutely loves this. This is actually an award she won uh, at completing one of the classes there. 
So this is an actual conversation she and I had earlier this summer. She came home one evening from her weekly class at, with the stable, and she just comes home. She is just pumped. She's so happy when she comes home from these classes. She's wearing her cowgirl boots and everything. And, and so I said to her, well, what, what did you learn tonight? Like, what did they teach you? What did, what did they have you do uh, at the class? And she says, oh, this actual answer. She says, oh, tonight, tonight, I got to shovel the poop. You got to shovel the poop? That's what you got to do? Yes, I got to shovel the poop. It was amazing. She's so happy about this. Now, just to be clear, we are paying money for this experience. And so I, I, she says this to me. I think this to myself. I don't say this out loud. I've learned not to say these things out loud. It's not good for your marriage. But I, I thought to myself, these people at this stable are geniuses. They have literally figured out how to get people like my wife who love horses to pay them money so that they can do all their work for them. I, I wish somebody wanted to pay me money so they could do all my work for me. That would be amazing. The, the reason I tell you that is because this is true of you, it's true of me, it's true of all of us as human beings. When you are doing something that you love, my wife loves horses. When you are doing something that you love, you don't work a day in your life. You'll, you'll shovel the poop and think it's wonderful. When, when you are doing something you love, you don't work a single day in your life. There is a huge difference between doing what you love and loving what you do. Let me explain that. There are many of us here in this room and many of us watching online uh, where you will work hard your entire life to finally get into a place where you can then finally go do what you love. But I would argue the best kind of life, the most fulfilling kind of life is when you love what you do. When you love what you get up and get to do every single morning. I got to shovel the poop today. That's what I got to do. What we see in Saul's conversion story, as, as we go into Acts 9 today, is that God not only saves us from our sin, but he also saves us for his glory. That's the theological truth I want you to understand. God does save us from our sin. Jesus' death on the cross uh, was a sacrificial death where he took on all of our sins, past, present, and future, even the sins you haven't even thought of yet, he took all of them on and he paid the price for all of, his, of our sin on the cross so that we could have eternal life in him. That is true. But not only does he save us from our sin, but the other part that we oftentimes miss with the gospel message is that he, we are also saved for his glory. And, and so every single one of us has a purpose. Every single human being has gifts, abilities, a purpose, a, a, a role to play in the kingdom of God. And when you find that purpose, when you find that unique calling, that unique uh, purpose that is on your life for the kingdom of God, and you, and you begin to live into it, you don't work another day the rest of your life. There's nothing more fulfilling than when we are living into that calling and we are living for God's glory. And so I hope today, as we look at Saul's story, I hope today is a day uh, that helps you press into that unique calling on your life for the kingdom. So I'll just give us a little bit of a, a picture of Saul. When we meet Saul in the book of Acts, uh, he is on a mission from God, or at least so he thinks. And the mission from God that he is on is he is 
pursuing and persecuting Christians. He's literally hunting Christians down, trying to have them killed, trying to have them arrested. He wants to snuff out the movement of the church. And he thinks by doing this, he's actually doing a service for God. Saul is a prominent Pharisee. Uh, He is also a very educated person. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council of the time called the Sanhedrin. And he is working very, very, very hard in his service to God to destroy the church. This is where we meet him. Uh, Verse 1 of Acts 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. That's a reference to Christians, the followers of the way. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, scholars have debated for years and years, and still debate, actually, to this day, uh, what exactly was it that knocked Saul to the ground on the road to Damascus? Like what, he's knocked to the ground, we know that, but what, was it the light? Is that what knocked him to the ground? Was it the voice that he hears? Is that what knocked him to the ground? Or was it the truth? And, and I would argue, I think that's actually a picture of what's happening right here. Saul is knocked to the ground by the truth of who the real true Jesus actually is. Up to this point, you've got to understand, Saul knew the God of the Old Testament. He knew God. He, he, knew the, uh, he knew the scriptures. He was an educated, prominent Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He knew God. But just like many of us, who we grew up in church. Saul grew up in church, okay? He knew God, but he had never yet met the true authentic, real Jesus. And when he meets the real Jesus, he's knocked to the ground. Why? Because that is a picture of conversion, my friends. That's a picture of what happens when we actually meet the real Jesus and we're converted to Christianity. What happens is when we meet the real Jesus, we realize he doesn't fit any of the kind of preconceptions we have of this God that agrees with us on everything, that holds to our same opinions and our same preferences and never can challenge us on any area of our lives. Some, some of us follow that God. But what happens when, is when we meet the true Jesus, he doesn't fit our, our preconceptions of what we think he is. He doesn't fit into our nice little theological boxes. I've seen this again and again uh, in, my, in my life. When people meet Jesus, we have to meet him on his terms as the way that he revealed himself. You can't just embrace him as a great teacher or, or, or a guy who lived a really good life. He, he claimed to be the son of God and the savior of the world. And when people meet Jesus, oftentimes, I mean, he doesn't fit the box as liberals. When they meet Jesus, will find that he's way more conservative than they're comfortable with. Conservatives, when they meet Jesus, kind of say, wow, he's, he's more liberal than I thought. Men, when they meet Jesus, say, well, he's, he's kind of got a feminine side. Women, when they meet Jesus, say, well, he's, he's a little more patriarchal and masculine than I thought he was. Religious people who are rule followers, when they meet Jesus, they're shocked at the grace and how soft he is on sinners. People who are immoral, when they meet Jesus, 
They're shocked at how holy he is and how high his standards actually are for us. And that, that's what happens. If, you, if you're following a God who can't challenge you and can't put his finger on any part of your life and say, that needs to change right there, I wonder if you've really met the true Jesus. Because that's what conversion is. And the reason I tell you that, it's, it's, that's really important for us to understand as we look at Saul's story and as we talk about our calling and our purpose. Because really, if you think about purpose, purpose is really just a byproduct of surrender. That's what it is. Our calling, our purpose, really comes about as a byproduct to surrender. And you see this again and again, not just in Saul's story, but in story after story of people in Scripture. Saul's story is not a story about a guy who sought God and and asked God to give him his purpose, and then finally he found it. Saul's story is a story about a guy who is knocked to the ground by the picture of the the real, true Jesus, and he has to surrender himself fully to that Jesus And then Jesus gives him his purpose and his calling for his life. And that's the way it really happens in our lives. If you go looking for purpose, you're never going to find it. But if you surrender yourself fully to Jesus, he'll show you what your calling is. Because you weren't just saved from your sin, you were saved for his glory. And you have a purpose in this life. And God will not lend you his power so you can accomplish your purposes your human purposes, and you will never be able to accomplish your kingdom purpose and calling without God's power. And so what we begin to learn to do is we learn that surrender, every part of our life has to become surrender to Jesus, and that's where he'll begin to impart his purpose to us. God does not show his plans to unsurrendered people. And I think about even just my own life, my own tendencies, it's the under-surrendered areas of my life, those areas where I want to keep taking back control, those areas where I want to keep kind of directing and, 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 and kind of owning for myself, those are the areas where I'm the most selfish, those are the areas where my pride gets the better of me, those are the areas where sin can get a foothold in my life. Those, those under-surrendered areas are the areas of my life where there's the least amount of purpose and I'm the most selfish. So the question we want to ask as we, as we look at Saul's story and we begin to engage it is how do we surrender? Not just how do we find our purpose, because purpose is really just a byproduct of surrender to Jesus. But how do we fully surrender to Jesus? What does that look like? So let's look here in, in the text. We're going to look at verse 5. Let's see what happens next. So Saul is knocked to the ground by the truth of who Jesus is. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, now, don't miss this in Saul's conversion story because oftentimes when I've heard people describe Saul's conversion, people describe it as, well, Saul was converted instantaneously on the road to Damascus. Have you ever heard that? People say, Saul was converted instantaneously. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Actually, he's struck blind and he stands up and he's in total darkness and he has no clue what's coming. He has to be led to Damascus by the hand because he's blind and he's told by Jesus, go into Damascus and then wait. Just wait. 
There's this period of time where he's in total darkness and he has no idea what's coming next. And he has to surrender himself and trust that Jesus is working behind the scenes, that he has a bigger plan, and that he's got some purpose for him worked out. We, we've talked about this so many times. Whenever we talk about uh, zero unfulfilled callings in, in our vision, we talk about this language of this is a move of yes before how. That's what this is. Saul has to say yes to Jesus even when he doesn't know the how of what's about to happen. Don't you think he had some how questions? In this moment, I'm guessing Saul wondered, how am I going to provide for myself? I'm blind. How am I going to get my sight back? How am I going to not get killed by people who, are, who would love to hunt me down for what I've been doing? How, 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 how? He has to say yes. Faith is always a surrender to say yes to God, even when we don't know the how. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, he lived in the 300s. One of his famous lines, he said, understanding is the reward of faith. So we say yes in faith first, even when we don't know the how, even when we don't have understanding of how it's going to work out. Some of you are living in that spot right now. Some of you are living in a space in, in your life right now where you haven't, God hasn't given you the big picture, but he's given you the next step. He said, will you surrender to me? Will you be obedient to me in this area? And you're wondering, well, how, if I do that, how is this going to work out? How is that going to work out? You, 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 surrender means you say yes, even when you don't know the how. If you turn to the back of your Bible, there are these three maps called, and uh, almost every Bible, called uh, Paul's Three Missionary Journeys. <laughs> Again, this is not a story about Saul, you know, getting knocked to the ground, and then Jesus goes, here you go, here are these three maps. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go on these missionary journeys. That's not what happens. It's you're blind, go in the city, and wait. Yes, even when you don't know the how. Is, is there anywhere in your life where you need to just say to God, yes, I'll take that next step, even when I, I have no clue where it's going long term? That's, that's the first thing we do when we surrender to God. Let's keep going in the text. Verse 10 uh, is where we're going to go. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can, be, so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. There's some problems with this, with this plan, Lord. But the Lord said to him, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So, so what happens in this moment, Saul is literally in Damascus. He's blind and he's waiting. And God begins to speak to him and he begins to speak to a, a disciple named Ananias and God says, go, lay your hands on Saul and pray that he'd be healed from his blindness. Now, don't miss this. Uh, this is a commissioning moment. In the book of Acts, you see this again and again and again. You see uh, these, these transitions that happen throughout the book of Acts where uh, elders of the church are, are given uh, a commission by God and the elders of the church will lay hands on and pray for 
um, someone and they are commissioned by God to take the next step and go to the next place where the gospel uh, needs to be preached and the next church that needs to be planted. And so this is a commissioning moment. This is a moment where Saul is going to, his name is going to eventually be turned to Paul and he's going to take on this life calling, this purpose in the kingdom of God of being the preacher to the Gentiles. And Ananias is to go and lay hands on him, pray for him to be healed of his blindness, and then he's going to be sent to do this. But what does Ananias say? What's his biggest holdback? What's his biggest problem to the Lord? Have you heard about the terrible things this guy has done? Are you kidding me? Is, are you sure this is the guy that you want to go do this, Lord? It's, it's these terrible things that are in Saul's past that are actually the thing that, in Ananias' mind, would hold him back. And that, what I love about this story, what I love about the commissioning part of this story, is that in the Lord's eyes, the things that had disqualified Saul in so many human eyes actually were the very things that God said, like, those are the things that qualify Saul to go and preach the gospel. It wasn't just that he was educated. It wasn't just that he was a prominent Pharisee, a member of, of the Sanhedrin. We, we learn later in the book of Acts he was a Roman citizen, which means he, that would have opened some doors in the Greco-Roman world for him. It wasn't those things that qualified him for his kingdom calling. It was the fact that he had done all these terrible things. He had been a persecutor. What better person to preach the gospel to the Gentiles than one who was from the inside who said, I was trying to snuff this thing out and God got a hold of my life. I'm telling you, he's real. Oftentimes, it's those things in our lives that we think disqualify us, that when we surrender them to Jesus, those actually become the preparation for our calling. So how do we surrender? We have to come to this place where we say yes before how, and also we surrender not just our good things, not just our good things, but our, our, the broken, tragic parts of our story, the bits of, of our history that we'd like to put behind us, that we'd like no one to remember. Those are the things that we also have to surrender to God. See, what happens oftentimes when we're saying, God, what is my purpose? What's my calling? What have you uniquely called me to do? What we say is, God, I'm going I'm to surrender to you all my good things. You can have my education. You can have my, my experience. You can have my talent. You can have my resources. And Jesus says, okay, but what about your wounds? What about your past? What about your failures? What about that stuff that you, you hope is, the door is shut to and nobody ever finds out about? Oftentimes, our life calling actually springs out of those things in our lives because Jesus, when we embrace the gospel and we come to know him, he can redeem everything, everything. He redeems it all. That's the gospel message. When I was uh, a kid, I, had, I, I should say I have ADD. It's not like I grew out of it. But I, I, I was diagnosed pretty young uh, with attention deficit, and um, I was the kind of kid where even though that, you know, I was on medication and everything, I have some really painful memories from my elementary years. I literally remember getting to a point where I would be so fidgety in my chair in class. I remember where I just couldn't stay in my seat any, anymore. I remember literally just getting up and walking out of class. Like literally the teacher's talking, and it's like, um, where are you going? And I just walk out the door. And I just go down the hall and get a drink because I just couldn't stay in my seat any longer. I was that kid. 
I was in trouble constantly. I remember, you remember when uh, pencil sharpeners used to be on the wall in the classroom? I remember getting in trouble because the teacher counted, I got up 10 times in one hour to sharpen my pencil, 10 different times. And she counted and she was like, you can't get up anymore for the rest of the day. I, I, was, I was constantly not paying attention. I was constantly not uh, on track. It was embarrassing. Particularly, I remember a third, my third grade teacher uh, who, who got so sick of me, she started like, and she could tell like I wasn't where I was supposed to be, paying attention, doing what I was supposed to be doing. And so in front of the class, she would start going, earth to Brian, earth to Brian, Bri- hello, Brian. Like this is what she would do. And then all the kids would turn and look at me and I'd kind of realize, oh, I wasn't paying attention. These are embarrassing moments. These are shameful. I mean, I, I, I remember as a kid, like every time I would go to a new class or a new grade or whatever, like my biggest fear was that people would just figure out how dumb I was. That's what I remember thinking about myself. So what happened was um, I learned coping skills. I worked really hard to put that part of my life behind me. I managed to graduate from college, even though I've been medicated multiple times in my life. Uh, You know, at this point in my life, I'm not on any medication. And when I graduated college and I became a pastor and we moved here to Grand Rapids, to me, in my mind, I thought, great, that door is shut. That's a part of my past. I don't have to think about that anymore. I don't have to do anything with that. You know, that's that's something uh, shameful. Okay, God, what do you what's my purpose? What do you want me to do? What, What are you calling me to do here, God, with my life? And then what happened is Carrie and I began to have kids. We have four boys Uh, One of our sons has a uh, physical deformity that's visible. Another one of our sons uh, has autism. And our other two boys are now medicated for ADD. Apparently, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. And when our kids started to be bored and and when we started to realize that each one of our kids was going to have something that made them a little bit different, something that made them struggle, to be honest with you, it, you know, surfaced for me. All those feelings of being a kid and being like the weirdo or, or feeling like the dumb kid. And I didn't, I, I was upset because I didn't want my kids to experience that. I didn't want them to go through what I went through. And it wasn't until as an adult with kids, as a parent, that I finally surrendered that part of my life and that part of my past to Jesus. And what I, when I did that, what I, what I began to realize was I was uniquely prepared to be their dad in some ways. Uh, their mom got straight A's. She's a wonderful, very smart student. Thank God she took pity on me and married me. But she can't relate to some of the things of what it feels like to be different, to be in, in, a, in an environment where you have different struggles and challenges. I, I'll never forget being in an IEP meeting. It stands for Individual Education Plan. If you have a child with special needs, you know what it is. And just realizing, like, I have plenty to say. I know how to advocate. I know because I know what it felt like to be that kid. And in a weird way, this is going to sound weird to you, in a weird way, it actually redeemed that part of my life. It brought healing to that part of my life. And that's what I want you to hear. God loves to do that. He loves us so much. He, he loves you so much. What he loves to do is he loves to actually take those broken, tragic bits of our history and our past, those things we want to shut the door on and forget about, and he loves when we surrender them to him to turn them into trophies of his grace and his goodness and, and launch us into our calling and our purpose related to those things. It's not just our good things. We have to surrender to him everything, even our, our bad things. And if you don't take my word for it, then take Paul's word for it. 
When he steps into this calling, uh, we, I just told you he wrote most of the New Testament. And, and as he writes these letters to the different churches that we have that makes up so much of our New Testament, again and again, he tells his story. And he doesn't tell the good parts. Hey, I was a pretty good guy. Or there, there, I, had some, I had some qualities that you know, qualified me. Take a look at this. This is Galatians 1. This is just one example where he shares his own testimony. He says this, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. You hear, this is not the stuff you want to say when you're a church planner. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. He had a purpose for my life. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the gospel about Jesus to the Gentiles. Do you see it? This is what what I want you to hear this morning. You were not disqualified when that thing happened in your life. You were not disqualified when your parents got a divorce. When you come to a place of surrendering that to Jesus, it becomes preparation in his hands for your calling. You were not disqualified when you got pregnant at 17. When you surrender that event in your life to him, he has the power to redeem it, to turn it into a trophy of his grace and his mercy and to prepare you to actually have a purpose in the kingdom, not just your good things. You were not disqualified when you failed, when you lost your job, when the marriage ended. Surrender it to him. Surrender it to him. Trust him even with that. He has the power to turn it. And it becomes preparation for your calling. It becomes preparation for what he wants to do in your life. And when you begin to live into that, when you begin to see that, it's the most powerful thing that can happen. You you don't work another day in your life when you begin to live into that calling and that purpose that he has for you. So as we turn this to ourselves this morning and this story and we point it at ourselves and say, what what does God want to stir and say to each one of us today? I, I think the best question we could ask is, what is unsurrendered? What is unsurrendered in your life? Remember, purpose, calling, it's a byproduct of surrender. God doesn't reveal his plans to unsurrendered people. And each one of us has a calling. So what is left unsurrendered in your life? Is it your past? Is it your future? Your plans, maybe your white knuckle gripped about your plans. Jesus, you can have everything else in my life, but don't mess with this plan I've got. Is it your money? Is that what you're white knuckle gripped with? Is it your shame? Is it a secret sin in your life? And you're just saying, okay, Jesus, you can have everything else. Don't mess with this. What is yet unsurrendered in your life? That, whatever that is, that is going to be the site of your most painful, 
brokenness. It's gonna be the side of your of where you act the most selfish, the most prideful, the most egotistical, and it's gonna have the least amount of purpose. But when you surrender it to him, he has the power to transform it. And you can trust him with it. How do I know? Because of the gospel message. Jesus wasn't just struck down on the road. Jesus was nailed to the cross and crucified. Jesus didn't just go through a few days of blindness. Real spiritual darkness came down on Jesus in the form of our human sin and our human depravity, and he paid the price for all of it. And when he rose from the grave, he is the only one who is qualified to direct your life, to decide what you become and what you don't become. You don't get to decide anymore when you surrender to him. He gets to decide. The enemy doesn't get to decide anymore. He gets to decide when you surrender it to him. So would you bow with me? Maybe there are some of you in this room or online hearing the sound of my voice right now and you say, man, I want that. I want my life to have purpose. I want my my life to count for something. I want to live into a calling that God has for me. But maybe what's holding you back has been coming to a place of full surrender to him. My, My biggest prayer for you this morning is not that you would find your purpose. I mean, I do want that for everybody. My biggest prayer for you is that you would surrender your life fully to Jesus and that you would know him as your savior. So Jesus, we come to you right now. We just recognize that you are the only one who can save us. You are the only one who deserves our, our, our highest praise. So God, we open our hands to you right now. We open our hands. We, we let go of our white knuckle grip on whatever it is, Jesus, that area of our life that is unsurrendered. And we ask you to be Lord over it all, over all of our lives. Jesus, we confess you as our Lord over all of it. Would you take it? Would you do what you want to do? We say yes right now, even if we don't know the how. We trust you with all of it, not just our good things, because we know that you are able to redeem everything in your time. So God, we know you're not done with us. We proclaim that, that you're not done with us, you're not done with our church, you're not done with this country, that you are still at work, and so we trust you in it, Jesus. And we say all this in your powerful name, and everyone said,